So science is a tool we use to better understand the natural world. How does science work? How does it operate? How does it serve as a tool? Well, there are three steps to the scientific method. First, we take an observation, and we try to explain the observation with a model or an explanation or a theory. And every good explanation makes a prediction. Every good prediction can then be tested with the observations to see if it's correct. And if it is correct, then the model is probably correct. If it's not, we need to go back, revise the explanation, and do a better job of predicting the observations. And in many cases, um, people ask, well, has science proven that? Is there a proof of that particular um, theory? And it's important to point out that science doesn't really prove things. Um, mathematicians prove things. Scientists, uh, in, in, in contrast, provide evidence in favor of a particular model or theory or explanation. And so over time, those models and theories, they change, they improve. Over time, the predictions improve. And over time, the observations also improve, allowing us to better understand the natural world through this process called the scientific method. Sometimes this time can take days, months, years, sometimes decades or even longer, but it's important to realize that science is a self-correcting process, that over time we are able to better understand the natural world through this process. Now, I have Professor Kate Detweiler with me today. Professor Detweiler is a professor of anthropology at Florida Atlantic University. Thank you very much, Kate, for being with us today. Thank you, thank you for having me here today. I'm sure our listeners would like to know what your research entails and what you do at Florida Atlantic University. My work at Florida Atlantic University is in the larger discipline of biological anthropology. So I fit that field by being a primatologist. So I study monkeys in their natural habitat, and then I relate it back to our understanding of humans and our position in nature and where we come from, from a scientific understanding. And so my work currently is in two places in Africa, in the Gombe National Park in western Tanzania, which is really well known from Dr. Jane Goodall's work with chimpanzees. And then I work at another site in the Congo Basin, known as the Lomami National Park. And it's a, a new, very large national park for protecting many different species besides primates. And the research questions I'm asking right now are about how this rich diversity we see in primates how it's come to be. So what are the mechanisms that generate these different species? So it's in the work of speciation, so the process of, of making species from evolution. And I look at, in this larger question of speciation, the role of hybridization. So hybridization is when members of two different primate species or any lineages um, in terms of we see hybridization occurring in the, the ducks out in the Everglades. And, and we know about uh, hybridization, of course, from frogs and salamanders, many different species, the Galapagos finches. And in primates, we also know that there's quite a high level, or I'd say it's fairly common for two different species to mate. And the research that I'm looking at is what happens, what's the consequence. So we're using genetic techniques to understand if there's a productive movement of genes between species and asking if the hybrid offspring is fertile, what then comes of, of this individual and how does the hybrid contribute to the next generations? It's clear that speciation is important in the animal kingdom. And I believe from your work, it's clear that hybridization 
is a process by which speciation can happen. But it sounds like, from what you're telling me, that one of the uncertainties in hybridization is the fertility of the offspring. What do we know about that fertility? And are there hybrids where we know the offspring will be fertile and those that we don't? And how do we know? Is there a theory behind that? Yeah, so I mean, to kind of go back a little bit in terms of the role of hybridization and speciation, we used to think, or until relatively recently, that the outcome was very predictive, like in terms of most hybrid offspring would always be sterile, because that's the definition of a species, that you have members who are compatible, and they understand each other's mate signals, and their offspring, therefore, continue the genomes of of their parents or the inheritance. And so for a long time in biology, biologists thought that when we recognize species in nature, they don't mate with other members of other species, and the reason being that this would be stopped by the sterility of the hybrid. What we're now seeing, though, is that rule or that prediction is often not held up. And so we see these breakdowns in the boundaries between species. And that's fascinating because it's a, it's a mistake, right? When we're thinking we understand how nature's working and we see these exceptions, we want to understand why. Why is it happening? And what will then come of it? And I think what we're seeing now is that the outcome is variable. Individuals, sure, they can be sterile. And that is often when you see the two parent species are quite old in terms of when they diverged in their history. And when you see more recent or closely related species that are compatible, and even though they are different and we see them as different, they can still mate and produce a fertile offspring. And that's where it gets exciting, I think, for biology, because this is where we see, I guess you could say, some flexibility in If they are fertile, if the offspring are fertile, then you're going to have the potential for genetic material that might be very adaptive for one species to move into another species. And this may not be, you know, a complete fusion of the two species. They'll be able to stay distinct on their own tracks, but you're going to have movement of potentially adaptive genetic material, what we know as alleles, that can move back and forth. And, and this is something new to our understanding of how speciation works. We thought it was a closed door. Right. In my introduction, I talked about how our understanding of the natural world changes over time because of the way science itself works. And what I hear you saying is that even this area of speciation and hybridization, and in the time you've been involved in it, you've seen changes in our understanding of that process. I'd like to know more about how you've seen changes over time with respect to our understanding of hybridization, and in particular in the monkeys that you studied in the, in the Gombe in Africa? Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great question. When I was an undergraduate in biology and my coursework was following the biological species concept where you don't see this understanding of hybrids being productive. So hybrids aren't known to have offspring. If they are even produced, again, they would be sterile and not have any contribution. And that was in the 90s. And my um, my first research project was going to Gombe, and that was because in a guidebook, I read that there were hybrid monkeys. And I thought, that's so strange. You know, it shouldn't, they shouldn't be there. And that's 
really interesting. So I went there purposely to look at these hybrids. And I wanted to answer the question, are they fertile? And that's easy for primates because the mom carries the baby on the tummy. And then if you see a hybrid female and you see her carrying an infant, you can assume it's probably her offspring. So I had a short amount of time and I went to Gombe and I was fascinated by the chimpanzees, of course, but I stayed, I stayed focused on looking at these hybrids and I found them and I found moms with babies. And so right there, I was, you know, having this discovery because I thought I wouldn't see any any evidence of them being productive. So in in biology productivity is in terms of an individual having an offspring so that the the traits of the species can be passed on to, you know, the future generations. So right away I went back to my college and I worked on a thesis project and my advisor had studied with Ernst Meyer, who was the biologist, you know, at Harvard, who in the 40s came up with the biological species concept, and it really became the standard in biology for decades. So when I came back and said I was seeing hybrids and I was seeing offspring, and I was really fascinated by this idea of how can two species living together have this species boundary be broken down and what will come of it. And I thought of this idea of sympatric speciation, where you can have maybe a new species. I mean, I didn't think of sympatric speciation. That was out there. That's been around for a long time. But I thought in um, primates, maybe this could be an example. And and I was really challenged by that idea because it wasn't Mm -hmm. really anything that people had seen because they were very different species. And then coming together, it would be a fusion or, you know, an amalgamation of these two existing populations. In my introduction, I also spoke about the first step where you gather observations of what you're trying to study. And I know that you're involved in a fairly new project to automatically or at least methodically identify the faces of monkeys. Uh, I'd like to hear more about why you need to do that and how that's going and where it's going. Yes. So we're looking at developing facial recognition software for the population that I'm working with. And these monkeys have very distinct faces, very colorful patterns that have spots and sort of patches of color on their face. We know individuals recognize each other. And the idea is that these face patterns and colors are really important in signaling that individuals are members of the same species, and they're thought to prevent hybridization. So what I observe at Gombe is these faces don't work. Individuals see each other. It's clear. They're right in front of each other's faces, yet they have very different faces, and they find each other as acceptable mates. Now, the question that we're working on is if we can get our understanding of individuals. So if we, as the biologists there, say we have a, a sample of the population 100, and we know 100 animals, or we know 200 animals, and we can reliably recognize them and give them names and then track them over years, we'll be able to understand maybe these hybrids are productive and having offspring, but maybe it's at a lower um, rate or a lower frequency than individuals who are representing the parental species. So the prediction is, is that even though they are productive and they are having offspring that maybe it's just less. And therefore, that's why over time, we'll see fewer hybrids and the feedback system will be that we'll keep the two parental species there. If we can get this facial recognition software working, then it's a tool for us to understand individuals with less error. So right now, we recognize every individual 
by our um, notes and our drawings and passing information from one person to the next. But if we could have it built into a facial recognition software, it would be a huge improvement for data collection. Of course, many of us have facial recognition software on our smartphones already for the human faces. Is there a difference between the way these monkeys' faces would need to be recognized compared to our faces by our smartphones? Are there tricks or difficulties there that you've encountered? Yeah, um, I haven't done this work as as I'm not a computer scientist and I don't know these algorithms, but I'm working with Dan Kane and some others in the College of Science so that hopefully we can figure out that they are apparently a bit different than the human face, but we're going to hopefully tweak it so that we'll be able to ideally put it on our, our phone or on an app you know, device that we can go out, take a picture, and then give it a little bit of time to do its measurements, do its calculating, and then it'll come back with choices and saying 95% sure it's this monkey, or maybe if it's not as clear of an image, it'll be 75% confident of who we're looking at. And then this can be used for the whole team that's working on the project. You were saying that the monkeys are able to recognize other monkeys of their own species. You're hoping that the facial recognition software will do the same, or what is the purpose? Yeah, so the purpose of the facial recognition software is for us to recognize individuals and to know them over years of study. So if we have a juvenile and we name it Dogo, which means little, and then if we name it Dogo, we want to make sure we can track Dogo over time and we don't confuse Dogo for Dove or another individual that's an adult. So when Dogo grows up and becomes an adult, we want to make sure we have 100% confidence that we're tracking that individual. So the facial recognition software is used just like the government uses it for understanding who's moving in our airports. And they know that when we have our name on our ticket, it's the face that we're presenting. And so when we see an individual animal, we want to make sure we know it's who we think it is. Because the key to our research and to understanding and looking for patterns over time will be if we can increase our sampling of who's having babies and how many babies is an individual having in a lifetime. And so this is a longitudinal data set. And this would allow us to follow in the footsteps of Jane Goodall, who has the longest running chimpanzee study in the wild. And so if we can do this for the monkeys, we have a much later start than Dr. Goodall, but if we can do this for the monkeys, then we'll be able to answer some really interesting questions about hybridization. Because in one social group, we have one parent species having babies, another parent species having babies, and we have these hybrids having babies. So we'll be able to do a comparative study. Thank you very much, Kate, for being with us today. Professor Kate Detweiler is a professor of anthropology at Florida Atlantic University. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.